Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Crime World with me, Nicola Talent, is coming to your town with live shows across the country. Following our flagship show, Omerta, Almost sold out at the Olympia Theatre Dublin on April 27th, we're taking to the road with promoter MCD. We'll be in Dolans of Limerick on May 3rd and in Belfast Limelight on May 17th. Then it's on to Cork at Cypress Avenue on May 18th and finally Galway, where we will perform at Monroe's on May 19th. For tickets, check venue websites. Omerta, the sacred secret code of the underworld. But what happens to those break it. Back when Jerry Hutch was a boy, things must have seemed a lot simpler on Dublin's inner city streets. Yes, there was grinding poverty, slum housing and little chance of ordinary folk ever rising above the hand they'd been dealt. But it was a world that Jerry Hutch understood. For even in the dark belly of the criminal underworld, there was a pecking order that people followed and respected. Of course there were those who stepped out of line and they were dealt with, sometimes in the most brutal fashion imaginable. But for the most part, things ticked along smoothly enough. Those involved in criminality planned their robberies and heists as quietly and covertly as possible. The less people who knew the details, the better. And most of those around them turned a blind eye as to how they raised their cash, often grateful for the financial boost a local area might get after a particularly big windfall. Everyone knew where they stood and there was order. It might not have been lawful and certainly the victims of these crimes which involved a lot of armed robbery were often severely traumatised. But compared with what was to come, it must now seem like a far quieter and a more gentle time. This is the story of Jerry the Monk Hutch from his early days as a young hoodlum through to his astonishing acquittal in the Special Criminal Court. How did this quiet-spoken man from the North Inner City become one of the most notorious figures in Irish criminal history? How did he end up on trial for murder and why did he walk free? It's a story about blood bonds, bitter feuds and shocking betrayal. 
It's a story about the changing face of Dublin and about the pursuit of justice in the courts and on the streets. The Monk is a four-part crime world long read produced by Ian Mullaney and read by me, Nicola Talent. Part 3, Dublin Underworld. Hutch the Gardaí have always believed was an integral cog within the domain of organised crime, which first started to emerge in Dublin in the 1970s. Up in the north, with the outbreak of the Troubles, armed bank robberies had become a popular way for the Provisional IRA to fund their activities. And possibly inspired by these audacious heists, criminals in the south began to look at hitting security vans and financial institutions as a quick way to make a lot of money. Indeed, by the early 70s, the Dublin Central Detective Unit had established that Martin the General Cahill and his brothers had teamed up with the notorious Dunn Gang in Crumlin to rob security vans after they'd made their collections from the banks. They got even more brazen. In 1983, Cahill and his gang stole £2 million worth of gold and diamonds from O'Connor's jewellers in Harold's Cross. Three years later, they struck again helping to steal some of the world's most valuable paintings from Rusborough House in County Wicklow. Other crime families operating around that time included brothers John and Michael Cunningham, experts at armed robberies who famously branched into kidnapping when they abducted the heiress Jennifer Guinness in 1986. And, of course, right there in the middle of this nefarious mix was Jerry Hutch, Although he has repeatedly claimed to have quit crime after his last stint in prison in the early 80s, Gardy believe he was at the forefront of Ireland's gangland scene for at least another two decades. He's also claimed never to have been involved in drugs, hating heroin because of what it had done to his local community. He never took them or sold them, he has declared on numerous occasions. But the Gardaí have long doubted that he steered totally clear of this very lucrative industry. Selling drugs has been the main way to make lots of cash for, well, for a very long time. The market here was kicked off by Larry Dunn, who flooded the streets of Dublin with heroin, a scourge that almost wiped out entire communities and left thousands of addicts dead in its wake. Originally from the Liberties, Dunn's family later moved out to Crumlin and they made their living selling clothes from a stall in the Francis Street market. One of ten brothers, Dunn was a thief from an early age and spent much of his youth in and out of industrial schools and prisons both in Ireland and the UK. For a time, he specialised in armed robberies. Then, with a few of his brothers, he got into selling cannabis. But after the Russian invasion of Afghanistan and the revolution in Iran, the European drugs market was suddenly flooded with heroin and Larry Dunn saw his opportunity to make some serious cash. Smack, as it became known, was a lot more expensive and infinitely more addictive than hash, making the profit margins a lot more attractive. Using contacts he'd made in prison in England, he began to source consignments to bring to Ireland. He also revolutionised the way dealing was done in Dublin, organising groups of youngsters into runners who sold heroin on the streets and in various flat complexes. He never handled the goods himself, earning himself the nickname Larry Doesn't Carry. 
By 1982, he'd made so much money that he was able to buy himself a huge house on acres of land in Sandyford in South Dublin, with uninterrupted views of the Dublin mountains. There was no way the other major criminals were going to let Dunn have a market this size to himself. And it swiftly spread across Ireland and by the 1990s so-called recreational drugs like ecstasy had become popular with swathes of Irish society from the working classes right up to professionals of all ages. The drugs business swelled again during the Celtic Tiger years when cocaine became the drug of choice. Suddenly, among a large coterie of very ordinary Irish people, it became almost acceptable to buy grams of coke for a big night out. As the market boomed, it also became a lot more competitive, with a lot more at stake. Long-time dealers were finding themselves being forced out or undercut by those who wanted in on the action. And it all got very savage, very fast. The violence was exasperated with the use of guns, once a rare enough tool in Irish gangland activity, brought out only for the bank or security jobs. Guns were starting to become commonplace, handed out to anyone willing to use them. Larry Dunn was finally caught with enough drugs to send him down for a long time and after a dramatic court escape, he was extradited back to Ireland in 1985 to start a 14-year prison sentence. It made no difference to the supply chain. There were already a host of other criminals busy importing and selling to a burgeoning drugs market. For instance, John Gilligan was working his way up to become one of the most prolific, not to mention violent, drug barons in the country. He's also thought to have changed the way organised crime worked here by using a well-structured business distribution and financial plan. The pint-sized thug was infamously acquitted of being involved in the murder of crime journalist Veronica Guerin, but he was later jailed for 17 years for importing cannabis. He's due back in a Spanish court soon, where he faces another possible three-year prison sentence for sending drugs back to Ireland by post. So, Ger, how is John Gilligan looking? John Gilligan, well... I discovered today was wearing the same suit that he wore in 2016. I hadn't picked up on that one, but he... He's doing okay for a guy that was arrested and and we saw the video of him being arrested in in October, I think it was, 2020. He's still out on bail. He's obviously still enjoying the Spanish sun and he's feeling pretty confident about this uh, case against him. Yeah, I mean, you know, the prosecutor in the initial indictment or in the indictment that's been presented in front of the courts is asking for a, you know, eight and a half year jail sentence on on full conviction, which, which is a long time in prison for a a 70-year-old man, but I think he knows and and probably the the state prosecutor is acutely aware that the chances of him getting that sort of sentence are, are, you know, it's fairly remote. There's a deal on the table, um, I believe, of, of three years. But by far the most notable of Ireland's drug dealers is... Christy, the dapper Don Kinahan, who ruthlessly and relentlessly built up his empire before attempting to hand it over to his sons with devastating consequences. From the start, Kinahan was an unusual player in this world. Born in 1957, his mother owned and ran a successful B&B at their large period red brick home in Cabra on Dublin's north side, while his dad had driven a taxi based out of a busy city centre rank. One of four kids, he was the only boy, and the family was comfortable and well-respected in their local area. 
But by the time he'd reached his 20s, Kinnahan had come to the attention of the Gardaí. His interaction with the Hutch family first began with the monk's older brother, Eddie, who was a low-level criminal robbing delivery trucks and breaking into warehouses. Kinnahan's middle-class accent and natty wardrobe, which earned him his nickname of the Dapper Don, made him useful for cashing fake checks or posing as a salesman offloading stolen goods on unsuspecting retailers. One of his first forays into the drugs business didn't end too well. In 1986, he was picked up in Clontarf with almost £120,000 worth of heroin, a huge amount at the time, and he was jailed for six years. His stint inside didn't put him off, and once released, his life of crime continued. There were more jail terms for fraud in between setting up his own drug-dealing gang in Dublin. And like the monk, he made the best possible use of his time behind bars, studying for two degrees. One well-told story about him is how he refused early release at one stage so that he could finish one of the degrees. It's also been claimed that he learned two languages, Spanish and Russian, which, if true, was undoubtedly a huge help when it came to his international drug-dealing career. By around 2000, he'd moved to Spain, and it's from here he built up his cartel for the next 15 years, sourcing huge amounts of cocaine to sell to the Irish and the UK markets. Not only does he have an unusual background compared to the other main players in Ireland's crime world, but he also had an unusual habit of being publicly vocal about his political beliefs. And for a long time, he was active on social media, in particular on LinkedIn, promoting his theories as well as his aviation consultancy business. We were able to discover the online presence of Christy the Dapper Don Kinahan. Total case of he hasn't gone away, you know. No, absolutely. It was a very busy week, busy skiing for you, but particularly busy for us um, back in in headquarters. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, Christy Kinnan Sr., I suppose we've heard over over the last few years how he stepped away from the business. And that's that's a lot of what we've, we've, we've heard about him. But I think the last few weeks have shown that while he may not be involved in, in, in the day-to-day of, of drug shipments, that he remains the mastermind behind the, the financial plan for the for the Kinnan cartel's assets. Um, He's this aviation broker. He has a LinkedIn page. You and I were able to read through his tweets, his LinkedIn postings uh, and other social media he had. And we got a proper insight into the kind of what was going on in his mind. He is pretty much pro-Vladimir Putin. He loves Russia. He thinks we should be a bit wary of Ukraine. Um, he likes Claire Daly, the MEP, and her thoughts. And uh, he's big into Russell Brand. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a funny a funny mix. I mean, I'll, I'll defend him slightly that his pro-Putin uh, uh, tweets kind of came before the invasion, actually. <laughs> For a number of years, Kinahan was married to his childhood sweetheart, Jean Boylan. They had two children together, Daniel and Christopher Jr., before splitting up. Like all good sons, his followed him into business, and it's with them that the tide of Irish gangland really turned, leading to the bloodiest feud this country has ever seen, and which in turn led to Jerry Hutch's arrest for murder in a Spanish restaurant in August 2021. 
so he was in Dubai and you could probably trace the Sunday world from sometime between 2015 and 2020. You have less and less Christy Senior and more and more Daniel. And that's that's the way it went. Yeah. I mean, Daniel became the the unwilling unwilling public face maybe of the Kingdom Cartel. Mm. And Christy, you heard we heard rumors, so he might not be might have held problems. He's playing a lot of golf was another thing you're always told. But he had sort of gone into the background and we were kind of getting more and more into the into the mind of Daniel, who was like very clearly a bit of an egomaniac, a bit of a narcissistic guy, manipulative. He had sort of, you know, fallen out with a lot of friends. There was people, enemies of his who had a lot to say about him. But in the middle of that and the truth of it was probably that he was this very egotistical person. Yeah, he was putting himself forward, Daniel. I mean, it wasn't that you had to search for what he thought because he had people saying it for him. Boxers, other people coming out publicly. So you knew what was going on with Daniel. Um, He was going to be the power broker of boxing in the world and that was his ambition, really. Yes, and he seems to have made his own contacts probably with the younger generation of of criminals Mm -hmm. across Europe that, that Daniel was dealing with directly, obviously from Holland, from the, from Eastern Europe and stuff like that. But while Daniel was maybe doing that, like amazingly, you know, because if I mean if you sit down and Google Christopher Kinnahan, I mean I don't know how many thousands and thousands of entries you get now. But simultaneously to that existing, Christopher. Kinnan Senior Senior seems to have set himself up as just not even he hasn't even renamed himself. Yeah. He's just chopped off his last name, Kinnan, and just called himself Christopher Vincent, and has had a very uh, relatively public life. As uh, you know, he describes himself online as a senior consultant, an aviation broker. Uh, you know, in in you know those sort of roles. You know, with his own headshot on LinkedIn, amazing, amazingly, a recognisable face, which again, he didn't have to do. Christopher Vincent, which is, you know, even the, the, the middle name Vincent has been published many times. And, you know, he's out there on LinkedIn, social media on a daily basis. And he's been there and he's been in the background pretty much heading up the operation, really. You know, from the financial point of view, as we said, Daniel is is looking after the, the drugs. And I remember the Spanish called it difficult decisions being (laughs) murder and various things like that it was very maybe Google Translate came came up with it but um... Given how small Ireland is it's not surprising there was overlap within some of the crime families for a time Jerry Hutch's nephew Gary was deeply involved in the Kinnahan gang some say he acted as Daniel Kinnahan's right hand man for all his adult life, Gary was a violent criminal suspected of carrying out several murders and charged with attempted murder. In 2001, he was jailed for six years for his role in a vicious armed robbery from a house in Malahide. The thieves brandishing shotguns broke into the bedroom of a businessman and his wife, forcing them to open their safe and got away with £32,000 worth of jewellery and £5,000 in cash. After his release, he spent most of his time in Spain where he worked in the drugs trade. But he came back to Ireland for the big jobs. 
Like a tiger kidnapping in 2010 when a bank official was taken from his home in County Kildare and forced to go to the vaults in the Bank of Ireland on College Green in Dublin. The kidnappers threatened to attack his girlfriend's family if he didn't follow their instructions and they stole 7.6 million euro. Most of it was never recovered and it's believed Gary Hutch used his share from the heist to invest in a drug shipment organised by the Kinnahans. But his investment didn't work out and it's after this Gary sought to exact his revenge by going after Daniel Kinahan. But he botched the shooting and effectively signed his own death warrant. It didn't help that rumours were swirling around the place that Gary was feeding information about the Kinahan's operations to Gardaí. And it's unlikely that he was a snitch, but the Hutch family knew he was in danger and spent months negotiating with Daniel Kinahan and his associates to try and persuade them not to kill him. They eventually struck a deal and it was agreed that the Hutches would pay the Kinnahans a six-figure sum thought to be around €200,000 and that Gary would step away from the drugs trade for good. Believing that he was now safe from harm, he returned to Spain to live. But the Kinnahans double-crossed him and in September 2015, the 34-year-old was shot dead by his one-time pal, James Frizzy Quinn, beside a swimming pool at an apartment complex near Marbella on the Costa del Sol. Quinn is now serving a 22-year sentence in a Spanish jail. Gary's death was the catalyst of everything that followed and if Jerry Hutch had hoped to avoid getting involved, it was made impossible for him when three months later in December 2015, he was lucky enough to avoid being assassinated himself. Two men in balaclavas burst into a pub on his beloved Lanzarote just minutes after he had left. There was no choice. A line had been drawn in the sand and the Kinnahans could not be allowed to get away with it. What happened next would change everything. Of course, for any journalist, you do want to be there when, when things are happening, but when, uh, when bullets are flying and, and guns are being pointed at you, uh, it, it kind of changes your perspective on that a wee bit. Yeah, well, myself and Ernie drove out uh, to the Regency, I suppose. We got there quite early. Uh, the the weigh-in wasn't due to happen until around two, half two. We'd been there for a little bit beforehand. Um, and had been, we parked at various uh, different spots just in the car park outside the Regency and, and driving up by the Regency and took a few different pictures of some of the people. There, there was a few of the Kinnan kind of associates had gone in. We'd got a few pictures of them. David Bourne had gone in, Lean Bourne had gone in. Did you see uh, David we, Bourne, yeah, going in? Yeah, yeah, I think Ernie should have a picture of him going in, I think, um, that we got before. Obviously, um, Lean Rowe, people like that. There was a few few, few different people that we'd know and we'd recognise um, from, from the Sunday world that were there. So we, we were basically just there taking pictures, seeing who was there. Um, you weren't going to just, go in then, like it was more the no, point. I, that I, was... I popped in briefly. Um, I was only in there probably for a minute or two. Um, I know the, the Evening Herald were there at the same time and Robin Schiller was in more in the room itself um, just before the shooting took place. But no, myself and Ernie were mostly outside, uh, kind of circling around different positions outside just to see who's coming and going, trying to spot the different people. The easiest place to do that really was on the door because they all had to come out to generally the same door and they were mostly coming out the front entrance. So what happened? What sort of time of day was it? Was it two o'clockish? It was about half two. Well, we'd been there from beforehand and we and we we took those pictures. So we that had all happened. Um, 
just before half two is when things really kicked off. Um, by that stage, we were parked just at Seven Oaks. It's a it's an estate in almost the grounds of the the Regency. It's a, a kind of complex there. With the, there's a centre across from it. There's a the Regency and then a little estate. So we were we were facing towards the the centre there. We could see people walking by past us. Um, and at that stage, we just heard a loud bang, um, and both turned to each other. Like given what the event was. Um, a loud bang like that obviously uh, draws your concern. So I, we were about to start moving around the corner after hearing the bang when we were just seeing a, a load of people come flying by, running out towards the Swords Road. Um, some of them were on foot. There was people jumping in cars and speeding away at, at high speed onto the, I think, mounting different paths as they were on the way. That all happened quite quickly. We came around uh, the corner then, you're talking only a few metres around the corner, and uh, we spotted a, a grey van and pulled up outside uh, the entrance to the hotel. There was there was a person in the van who seemed to be armed with a, an assault rifle, and there were, there were people to the right of the van, kind of almost tripping over, falling over and running, trying to get into bushes, which were to, to the side opposite the hotel, um, and the weapon was being pointed at them. So the driver of the van had the weapon? It seemed that way, yeah, from, from, from our perspective, at some stage the driver of the van had a weapon, because from the angle it looked like from where we were, we were sitting behind it, um, a weapon seemed to come around from the driver's door towards yeah. us. From the very start, Jerry Hutch was a formal suspect for the Regency gun attack, a meticulously and daring attempt at hit on Daniel Kinahan, which missed him by a mere seconds. It's clear the Kinahan gang were also certain of who was behind the ambush, and three days later, the monk's brother Eddie Hutch, an innocent taxi driver, was gunned down at his flat on the North Strand in Dublin. A few weeks later, one of Jerry Hutch's best friends, Noel Kingsize Duggan, was shot dead while sitting in a car at the Old Mill housing estate in Rathoth in County Meath. It's been reported that around this time, senior guardee went to Hutch to ask if there was any possibility of trying to negotiate with the Kinnahans again in an effort to end the bloodshed. By this stage, five men were dead. Gary Hutch, Darren Kearns, who was shot in December 2015, David Byrne, Eddie Hutch and Noel Duggan. Jerry Hutch refused to even consider any kind of mediation. Things had gone too far. According to one crime source, he simply told Gardy, there's no going back. I've nothing to lose. Over the next two years, 13 more men would die, the vast majority of them killed by the Kinahan gang. Given the extent and ferociousness of the bloodshed, it's not surprising that two of the dead were innocent victims caught in the crossfire of this bloody and senseless feud. Trevor O'Neill, a Dublin city council worker, was shot dead in Majorca on a family holiday with his wife and young children in August 2016 after he was mistaken for a member of the Hutch family. While 24-year-old Martin O'Rourke was killed on Sheriff Street in Dublin in April 2016 after being shot in the back of the head by stray bullet during an attempted hit on a Hutch family associate. In the meantime, the Gardaí investigation into the Regency murder, one of the most high-profile criminal events in this country, was going full throttle. At one point, Jerry Hutch's nephew, Patrick, who was alleged to have been the gunman dressed up as a woman, 
complete with a long blonde wig, was arrested and charged with murder, but the court case was sensationally dropped in 2019 after the sudden death of lead investigator, the detective superintendent Colm Fox in Ballymun Garda Station. During all this time, Jerry Hutch was on the run, having fled Ireland shortly after his conversation with the Gardaí. Not only did he have the Kinnahans to worry about, but the guards were determined to get him too. And in April 2021, they finally got their European arrest warrant after the Director of Public Prosecutions ordered that Hutch be charged with David Byrne's murder. It took four more months before he was arrested in a restaurant in Fungarola by Spanish police. On the 29th of September 2021, he was flown by military aircraft from Madrid to Casement Aerodrome by the Irish Defence Forces and was taken straight to a special criminal court where he was formally charged with Byrne's murder. It was 36 years since he'd seen the inside of a jail cell and for the next two years he must have spent countless hours brooding over how he'd ended up back in one, over who exactly had betrayed him and what exactly they had said. When his trial finally started in November 2022, he started getting all of those answers. The Monk is a four-part crime world long read produced by Ian Mullaney and read by me, Nicola Talent. Crime World is a podcast from sundayworld.com. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.